Hi everyone, welcome to Baby Steps Nutrition, a podcast that focuses on nutrition, health, and wellness for families of children of all ages and stages. I'm your host, Argavon Neil Forouge, a pediatric dietitian and mom of two young children. My goal is to bring you impactful information that you, you can apply every day in a simplified, practical form you for to make life in. easier. Until next time. Now let's get into today's conversation. As a public, as much as we'd like to put our trust and belief in governing bodies to provide honest and transparent messaging when it comes to food and nutrition, unfortunately, this is not the case. What is the intersection between food, science, public health, and politics? Why are the majority of chronic illnesses in this country linked to diet? Marian Nessel is a Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at New York University. She is also Visiting Professor of Nutritional Sciences at Cornell. She earned a PhD in Molecular Biology and a Master of Public Health in Public Health Nutrition from the University of California, Berkeley. Her research examines scientific and socioeconomic influences on food choice, obesity, and food safety, with an emphasis on the role of food industry influence. She is the author of six prize-winning books, including Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences Nutrition and Health, and most recently, Unsavory Truth, How Food Companies Skew the Science of What We Eat. She's also written books about politics and pet food. Welcome, Dr. Nessel. What an incredible honor to speak with you today. Oh, glad to be here. I am seriously starstruck, so this is very exciting for me. Let's get right into it. Dr. Nessel, you have been referred to as a food politics powerhouse. Why has it become your life's mission to not just educate the public, but get involved at the public health and policy level? Well, I think what happened was that it became obvious to me that the food industry was not a social service agency or a public health agency, but food companies are businesses with profits to make and stockholders to please as their first priority. And once I realized that, I could see that nobody else was talking about it. It was as if the food industry was the elephant in the room. And I would go to meetings and about childhood obesity, for example, and everybody would be talking about how are we going to educate mothers to feed their children better? And nobody was saying, how are we going to get the food industry to stop marketing junk foods to our kids? And so I started describing what I was seeing and talking about what I thought was the obvious, and I'm happy to say that lots more people are talking about these things these days. Yes, and it started with advocates such as yourself, because as you said, you've inspired people like me to really speak out and get the information out there. And there's still so much that I feel I'm learning, both as a nutrition healthcare professional and as a mom. Let's talk about people's intentions to quote unquote, be healthy. Why is it not easy to be a smart consumer these days? Well, from the standpoint of eating, it's impossible to be a smart consumer unless you really, really work at it because the food industry's job is to get you to buy more food. They don't care what the food is. What they're interested in is selling products that are going to make money for their stockholders. Once you understand that, everything else follows from it. 
And so they're not sitting around board tables talking about how are we going to make Americans gain weight. That's not what they're about. They're about how are we going to get people to buy our products in a marketplace that contains roughly 4,000 calories a day per capita. That's how much food is in our food supply in the United States, roughly twice what the population needs as a whole. That's 4,000 calories a day for every man, woman, and little tiny baby in the country. We don't need that much. We need about a half of it. So if you're a food company in this environment, you've got to figure out how to get people to eat more of your product, or you have to sell it at a higher price, which is a no-no because Americans love cheap food, or you have to convince people to buy your product instead of somebody else's. And one way to do that is by making it look really healthy. So we have health claims that are extremely misleading. We have marketing that's targeted to children, targeted to minority groups, targeted to the most vulnerable members of society. And the entire purpose of this operation is to get people to buy more food. I call it the creation of an eat more food environment when everybody would be healthier, almost everybody would be healthier eating less. I agree. And you have spoken on something called the LOHAS, the Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability Consumers. Can you please tell the listeners what that is? Well, I don't even know if that term is used anymore. It was used about 10 years ago a lot. But it describes the growing segment of the public that's really interested in health. That would be you and me and our friends. You know, we really care about our health. We want to do things to promote our own health. We want to eat healthfully. We want to be physically active. We're going to yoga studios. We're walking. We're doing all these really good things for ourselves. And marketers know how to appeal to us really well. Yes, and I think the whole even greenwashing that happened with health products and things that we use, household products, it even trickled into that industry. So we're definitely seeing a lot of those everywhere. Yeah, it's in everything. It's in all kinds of consumer products. It's in makeup. It's in clothing. It's in everything that you can think of because people who care about their health generally care about the environment as well. And these things are inextricably linked. Yes, and I'd like to get into that in a little bit, and I'm glad you brought that up. Let's first talk about the enormous sales of what you call lesser evil and functional foods. Why are we seeing this trend, and what are we seeing from a supply-demand issue? Well, health sells. And if you're a marketer trying to sell a product, one way to do it is to give it a health aura, make it seem healthier than other products. I see this playing out most ridiculously in fruits and vegetables competing with each other for which one has the most antioxidants. It really doesn't matter which one has the most antioxidants. The whole point about nutritional advice is to get people to eat a wide variety of relatively unprocessed foods. And I don't care whether you eat blueberries, raspberries, strawberries, or any other kind of berry. As long as you're eating fruits and vegetables, that's going to be good for you. But they don't see it that way. And so the producers of these foods are sinking fortunes into research to demonstrate that blueberries have more antioxidants than other kinds of fruits. 
I mean, again, something that is completely meaningless because you don't know which antioxidant they're talking about and you don't know what those do anyway, but it sure makes them sound good. And I know people who think that if they eat blueberries every day, they're going to live forever. Yes. Yes. And we're also hearing about the term superfoods. And that's another one that's being thrown around quite often. Yeah. Superfoods is a marketing term. It needs to be understood as a marketing term. It has no nutritional meaning. I agree. The whole point about dietary advice is variety. And the reason for that is that foods contain different collections of essential nutrients. And some have more of one nutrient than another. And if you eat a wide variety of foods, you're going to get them all. Couldn't have said it better myself. And you had mentioned environment, and we can't talk about food without a discussion about the environment. What are your thoughts about the impact of our current methods to produce, deliver, and prepare foods on the environment and ecosystem? Well, it's hard to be very exact about it, but the estimations, the average estimation that I've seen is that at least a quarter and maybe up to 40% of greenhouse gas emissions are a result of the way we either produce or consume food. And this would include everything in the food system from production to transportation to processing to waste. And that's a big proportion. It's right up there with transportation. But nobody really knows that. It hasn't been widely publicized. And there's not very good agreement about the exact proportion, which makes it kind of hard to talk about. So we need to think about while we're making wise and thoughtful food choices about the effects of our food choices on the environment. And here, the issue of meat comes up because the production of beef is the single leading cause of food-related climate gas emissions. So there's a big effort to reduce beef consumption not only for health reasons, but also because of environmental reasons. Yes, and you're specifically referring to factory farming. Is that correct? Well, yes, because the factory farm beef is how most beef in the United States is produced. And those animals require an enormous amount of feed, an enormous amount of land to grow feed for those animals. And when all of that adds up, it adds up to much, much more greenhouse gas emissions than for any other food that's produced. And of course, ruminant animals burp methane as well. Yes. And what are your thoughts on a lot of people speaking about the plant-based diet or switching to more of a plant-based diet and relying less on meat? in their diets? Well, you know, I mean, this is recommendations from just about everybody, not just people who are committed vegetarians or vegans, but almost anyone who's interested in health or the environment realizes that eating less meat would be a good idea. It doesn't necessarily mean no meat, because animals have a very important role to play in the ecological production of food because their waste products fertilize the land. And if all of that is done properly, as is done under what is now called regenerative agriculture, then that actually sequesters greenhouse gases. But that's not how we're producing most animals in the United States. Most of them are raised on factory farms, and those are extremely climate unfriendly. They're also animal welfare unfriendly, but that's another matter. Yes, and for the listeners that are with us today, and they're very passionate about learning more about the environmental impact 
and food production. Do you have resources or links that you find are reputable and helpful that we can direct them to? And I'm happy to provide those in the show notes. Yeah, why don't we do that later? Okay, perfect. So I will get that list from you and I will provide it for the listeners. Dr. Nessel, I had learned that you also cover the pet food industry and having become a pet owner myself about a year ago, I thought that was fascinating. What do you want the public to know about that? About pet food? Yes. Um, You know, the pet food industry, to explain it, it's most like the infant formula industry. Infant formulas are all the same because they all have to meet exact standards that are set by the FDA for the nutritional quality and the nutritional content of what's in the products. And so they're basically all the same. Pet food is designed the same way. You know, if you just buy a can of a complete and balanced pet food, that's going to meet all of your pet's nutritional needs. Those standards are set by a different organization, but all pet foods that are complete and balanced have to meet the same standards. So they're basically the same. And once you understand that, and there's no research that demonstrates that expensive pet food is better for your pet's health than an inexpensive pet food, really, we couldn't find any in doing the research for this book that helps you do that. Now, whether you think that feeding pets a can or the dried pet food or whatever is the appropriate way to feed pets is up to you. But these products that are made for pets have a very important function in the food system, and that is a lot of the waste of human food production goes into pet food. And I think that's a very good use for it. Mm, That's very interesting. And you're right, like there are even things that I didn't know, but there are also equally expensive as well as equally cheap options out there. And they're also targeting pet owners and pushing for one versus the other. Well, yes, because... Pets don't choose their own foods. Owners do. Yes, and I like that you compared it to the infant formula. That's a great way to look at it. Dr. Nessel, you have written several books. Is there one that stands out for you as the most transformative or eye-opening during the research and investigative phase or even the public response? Well, probably Food Politics, which came out in 2002, was the one that had the biggest impact. And in that book, I described how the food industry influences nutrition and health. That's its subtitle. And I just gave example after example after example. And for many people, this came as an enormous surprise. They just hadn't realized it. They hadn't thought about it. Nothing very much had been written about it. So I think that was probably the one that had the biggest impact. A few years later, I wrote a book called What to Eat, which was a book about food issues using supermarkets as an organizing device. And I've just started on an updated edition of that book. The research on it is now 15 years old, and a lot has happened in supermarkets and in food issues since then. And so the publisher has agreed to do a second edition, and I've just started working on that. And then Unsavory Truth, which came out in 2018, was a book about how the food industry influences research on nutrition and health. And I'm hoping that that will also have 
an impact in getting food companies to stop funding research, which just by an extraordinary coincidence almost always comes out in favor of whatever it is they're trying to sell. Yes. So I'm hopeful that that will eventually have some kind of impact. And then my most recent book is Let's Ask Marion, which I wrote with a friend, Carrie Truman. And we answered questions. Oh, she asked questions and I answered them about a whole variety of issues related to today's food system. It's a very short book and it's a very quick introduction to my thinking about a lot of issues. I can't wait to read that one. And is it true, I saw somewhere online that you mentioned you also have a memoir that's coming out the end of this year? Yeah, that's just gone to press and is in production and I'm dealing with the cover even as we speak. (laughs) So it's a professional memoir. It'll come out sometime next fall. I'm not sure when. Wonderful. Well, congratulations to you on all of those accomplishments. Dr. Nessel, I really want to get into this topic. As you know very well, we live in a country where the majority of people are overfed yet undernourished. Where do you see the future of behavioral research? Well, I don't think that overeating and and under being undernutritious is a question of behavioral research. I think we need research on how to counter food industry influence on what people eat. People eat what's in front of them. They eat what's cheap. They eat what's advertised. They eat what's going to satisfy hunger. They eat what they can afford. And until we create a food system that promotes healthier eating, I think it's unreasonable to think that behavior change is what needs to change. I think the food environment needs to change. Yes, and that's one of the things. There's so much blaming and shaming that comes up. I've even spoken with other industry experts. And I'm glad that you brought that up because I really want to change the narrative to accessibility, food insecurity. Like you mentioned, there's so much despair and so many issues that we need to address from a social level. And that trickles down into the food behavior. So thank you for, I know you're a big advocate of those. I'm curious to know your thoughts on how the food industry and the tobacco industry are similar. Well, let me start with the differences, because people may be shocked at the analogy. I mean, food obviously is not tobacco. With tobacco, the issues are really pretty simple. Don't smoke. It's one product, one message. Don't smoke cigarettes. Do anything that you can to stop, you know, not to start smoking cigarettes. If you are smoking cigarettes, stop as quickly as you can. Food is much more complicated. We have to eat to live. We can't live without food. And so the issue then becomes not whether to eat, but whether to eat this instead of that, or how much we're supposed to be eating. And since we have a choice of hundreds of thousands of products available, the choice of food becomes very complicated. So that's what the differences are. The similarities have to do in the way that foods are sold. In the tobacco industry, when it became obvious that smoking cigarettes caused lung cancer, there was a lot of pressure on the tobacco industry to back off. There was pressure to try to regulate the tobacco industry. It took a very long time, but it eventually happened. And the tobacco industry, to fight off that regulation and to postpone it for as long as possible, 
created what is referred to as the tobacco industry playbook. And this was a set of precepts about how to behave, to defend tobacco against charges that it was unhealthy. And the playbook worked like this. First of all, you blame personal responsibility. You say, we're not forcing people to smoke cigarettes. We're not holding a gun to anybody's head. You don't want to smoke? You don't have to. It's up to you to decide whether to smoke or not. Sort of ignoring all of the efforts that go into convincing people to smoke. Then they funded their own research to get the kinds of research that they wanted, in particular to cast doubt on the research that linked cigarette smoking to lung cancer. All you have to do is create doubt in that kind of research to give people who want to smoke permission to continue smoking. Then they funded their own research to show that tobacco was harmless. And then behind the scenes, they were lobbying to make sure that nobody regulated them. They were lobbying to make sure that nobody did anything to make cigarettes more expensive. They lobbied against the kinds of rules that would make it impossible to smoke inside and those kinds of things. They were very, very effective at all of that. And the food industry has picked up on quite a bit of that playbook. It certainly blames personal responsibility. It's not our fault that people are overweight. We're not forcing people to eat our products. It's up to you to decide whether you're going to eat it or not. Again, ignoring the efforts that the food industry is undertaking to try to get people to eat more of their products. Then they cast doubt on the research. They fund research that shows that any research that shows harm for their products is so badly done that you don't have to pay attention to it. They fund research to show that their products are healthy or at least not unhealthy and so forth and so on. They buy scientists to support their products. They do everything possible to lobby against any kind of regulation that might restrict sales of their products and so forth. And again, this is not because the people who are in these companies are evil. This is the normal course of doing business in the United States these days. Your job is to sell products and reward stockholders. And that's your first priority, regardless of what that product is. Yes. And on this topic of lobbying power and influence, I actually just did a solo episode on the dietary guidelines for Americans, because I wanted to share what was in the guidelines. But I know you had also spoken out about the conflict of interest that often exists between the scientists, the policymakers, and creating the guidelines. Yes, well, I've seen any number of studies now that show that a large number of the people who are on the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee in 2020 had ties to the food industry. Either they worked for the food industry, they consulted for the food industry, or they had. They were obviously very sympathetic to the food industry in a lot of ways. And nevertheless, the guidelines didn't change much from the previous version they continue to reflect food and I mean, they've always reflected food industry interests in having meat and dairy as essential components of dietary guidelines in phrasing what you're supposed to eat in positive terms, eat more fruits, vegetables and whole grains. But when it comes to what you're supposed to eat less of, 
they switch to nutrients and talk about sugar, salt, and saturated fat rather than the foods that contain those. And there are political reasons for this. It's very difficult for government agency to suggest eating less of an American agricultural product. Yes. Because every American agricultural product has lobbyists that argue against it. In the 2015 dietary guidelines, we saw a very good example of that. That committee wanted to suggest eating less meat for reasons of sustainability as well as health. And the meat industry went to Congress and got Congress to forbid the Department of Agriculture from allowing dietary guidelines to say anything about sustainability. And the word does not appear in the 2015 dietary guidelines and also does not appear in the 2020 dietary guidelines. And neither does ultra-processed foods, which is the term given to a particular category of junk foods, the junkiest of the junk foods, that are formulated to get people to eat as much as possible of them and that are now strongly associated with poor health, mortality even. And there's so much research on it, it's kind of overwhelming. There's even a controlled clinical trial that shows that people who eat diets based on ultra-processed foods take in 500 more calories a day than when they're eating relatively unprocessed foods. The dietary guidelines say nothing about that. But they could have been a lot worse, and I didn't think they came out too badly. I think they were very strategic in trying to incorporate some things that they felt would sit well with the quote-unquote health advocates. But you're right. Those are the things that stood out for me, the sustainable part, and then staying away from the ultra-processed foods as well. Yeah, neither of those words is mentioned in the 164-page document. Also, it's gotten so big and complicated, it's really not useful. Right. I agree. And in your opinion, which legislations and food policy need to be changed today? Oh, it's hard to know where to begin. We need much stronger food safety regulations. We need much better labeling regulations. We need much better support for food assistance programs. I mean, in every single area of food policy, we need improvements. We're getting some in this administration, but I think we need much more. Yes. Well, lots to help out for those listening and who would like to get involved. Being still in the pandemic, what role do you think the health industry plays in helping or worsening the current public health pandemic? The current healthcare industry is doing everything possible to prevent a single-payer healthcare system that would work. We don't really have a healthcare system in the United States. It's completely fragmented and everybody's on their own to get their own health care. It's ridiculous. You go to other countries and it's much, much easier and people are healthier and don't pay nearly as much for health care as we do. And I think the healthcare industry is so interested in protecting its bottom line that it's not really looking out for the health of the American public. Yes. And do you feel like the food industries, having learned from people's habits during the pandemic, they're looking to take things in a specific direction? Remember, the purpose of the food industry is to sell food as much as possible at as high a price as possible. We've seen the most egregious example in the meat industry, which has raised its prices 
given enormous returns to stockholders and is squeezing meat producers to the point where they're going out of business. The president is trying to intervene with that. Whether that will help or not, I don't know. But we have a highly concentrated meat industry. It's the most obvious example. Other food companies are trying to take advantage of the pandemic in advertising their products as boosting immune systems and other kinds of things like that that don't have much evidence behind them. But remember, all of this is about selling food. That's what it's about. It's marketing. Yes, and I hope the listeners can keep that in mind as well next time they're at the store and the health claims, right? That's a big part of it. And so all I can teach even people I work with are the labels. We know they're not perfect either, but at least looking at the labels, you have an idea of what you're putting into your body versus what they claim that you're putting in your body. Yeah, I'm a great believer in reading labels. They're not easy to read. They're really not, Mm -hmm. even for somebody, you know, who studies them. But I think taking a look at how much sugar and salt is in a product, how many calories it has, you know, you have to be careful about preserving. And looking at the ingredient list is really useful if you want to identify which foods are ultra processed. They're the ones with long lists of ingredients that you can't get at a supermarket or you don't usually have in your home kitchen. If you can't make a product in your home kitchen, it's it's likely to be ultra processed. Perfectly said. And Dr. Nessel, I know we can talk for hours. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Well, I write an almost daily blog at foodpolitics.com and you can subscribe to it or go look at it. And I post five times a week on the kinds of issues I've been talking about. Wonderful. And I will be sure to include that in the show notes as well. Dr. Nestle, you are a great champion of public health and safety, and we are all immensely grateful for the work that you do. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for inviting me and for your kind words. Stay healthy and safe. Thank you. And you really do inspire me to not just use platforms to educate others, but to get involved at the public health policy level. And hopefully this inspires others like moms out there to do the same. Thank you for your valuable time. And to the listeners, thank you for tuning in. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast with your host, Argavan Nilforush. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into all the tips and tricks you and your family can use to make daily life a little easier. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review, share with others, and follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast. As always, you can head over to babystepsnutrition.com to sign up for our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. See you next time. Tune in. Feel great.